0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike's traveling with the uh, London Knights. Happy New Year! I'll be filling in for Mike today and tomorrow. Mike will be back with you on Monday. In the meantime, you can still get your Stubbs fix. London Knights are on 980 CFBL tonight. 6.30 pregame. Knights are in the St. Catharines tonight to play the Ice Dogs. Evan Bouchard, Adam Adam Boquist will not be in the lineup. Uh, both were eliminated from the World Juniors last night. Bouchard obviously with uh, Canada. Boquist with Sweden. I'll have more on all that in a moment, but you can hear the game uh, tonight. Puck drops at 7 o'clock. You can also hear the game online at 980cfpl.ca. Knights also play uh, tomorrow night as well. ...as they usually do on Fridays. On today's show, have got a lot for you. We'll talk about the World Juniors, but I don't want to talk about the game so much, although you, you can talk about it if you want. There's a cyberbullying element to it. In the first hour, we'll uh, be talking about uh, a New Year's uh, theme generally. Talk about managing your finances after the holiday season. We'll also talk about what kind of winter we have in store. So far, so good. In the second hour, we'll talk about the new distracted driving penalties. Former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner will join us. We'll also get his thoughts on the carding review that was released. We'll talk about uh, New Year's resolutions and why I think they're stupid. And we'll talk about uh, glasses and why they're so expensive. I bought uh, glasses uh, recently, well, last year. But um, uh, I went to get some sunglasses, some like prescription sunglasses. And you want to guess how much the sunglasses cost? I'll tell you in the uh, the second hour of the program. You're going to have to wait around to find out. They are they were ungodly. I did not get them. It was um, far too much money. Uh well, first, though, let's talk about the World Juniors. Uh, Canada lost 2-1 to Finland last night. It was in overtime. It was a heartbreaking game. Finns scored with about uh, 40 seconds left in the third period. They tied the game 1-1. Won the game in OT after Canada had a scoring chance, but Noah Dobson's stick broke. He was taking a shot as he uh, was going for that uh, possibly game-winning goal. Stick broke. Play goes back at the other end, and uh, Tony Oltenen scored the game winner for Finland. That whole sequence came right after Maxime Comtois, the captain, had a chance to win the game on a penalty shot. Knights defenseman Evan Bouchard was penalized on a breakaway, Comtois was chosen to take the shot he missed in uh, international hockey. Anyone could take the penalty shot. If that were the OHL, Bouchard would have taken it. But in in, uh, international hockey, anyone on the Canadian side can uh, take the penalty shot. Comtois is Canada's best uh, penalty shot taker, and he missed it. So it's a tough loss for Canada. We were defending gold medal champions. It's been a while since we've gone to the World Juniors and have left it without a medal, where Canada... It's gold or bust in this country. And I'll say this, like, the goal is to win the gold medal. Silver and bronze are nice, but you're in it to win it. Just to channel my inner uh, Hermed words, you play to win the game. You don't play to just play it. You play to win the game. So I know they're teenagers. There's a lot of pressure on them. But the goal is to win the gold medal, and they didn't do that. That having been said, they tried hard. They put it all on the line. And the thing about sports is you don't always win. You can't always win. Winning isn't any fun if you never lost. So while it's a disappointment, it's not the end of the world. They tried hard, came up short. That's the way it goes sometimes. Not the end of the world. Canada will be back. Hockey Canada is going to be just fine. There were some jokes last night about how we should have a hockey summit because we lost in the quarterfinals. And any time Canada in a international hockey tournament, if we don't finish in the top three... We have to have a summit. We've uh, had hockey summits before. We'll probably have them again in the future. We don't need a hockey summit now, but we do need a sort of summit because of hockey. Soon after Canada lost, it did not take some fans long to flood the Instagram account of Maxime Comtois and disparage him in every which way. So I want to read you some of the comments from his Instagram page. Uh, Jordan Lee wrote, it's his, his, his Jordan, as Michael Jordan, and an L.I. He wrote, you're the second worst captain that Canada's ever had. Second to Strom. You do not, des-, and then he also wrote, you do not deserve captain. Not to make sense of, like, the trolling comments, but, like, can you remember who was captain last year? Who remembers who's captain of Canada? Another comment was from Micatelli. These are, these are their, your handles. Worst ice hockey player I've ever seen. And then he had a poop emoji, thank you, semifinals. Which also doesn't make sense because they're not going to the semifinals. But also, if you're a fan of hockey, why are you saying ice hockey? It's just hockey. Anyway, uh, I'm trying to make sense of stupid stuff. B. Fergs wrote uh, absolute joke. And then someone called AIDS Pharmacy. So you know this is going to be high quality. He wrote, you effing useless bag of dog S-word. So these are the type of comments Maxime Comtois had on his Instagram page. Aside from the actual content of the comments, the grammar is just disgusting. And it's pathetic. This is the reaction we get from hockey fans. Obviously not all hockey fans, not even the majority of hockey fans, but some hockey fans. An example of bullying an example of cyberbullying that's present in today's culture, not just hockey, it's everywhere. Not one of those people would have had the stones to say any of that to Maxime Contois' face, or anyone's face. They're keyboard warriors. So forget hockey summits. What we need is something on cyberbullying in this country. There should be consequences for what you say and do. I'm not saying you go to jail. I'm not saying these people even need to lose their jobs. Just a little public shamings in order. Think of the pressure on Maxime Comtois' shoulders. He's the captain of Team Canada. You're at home. You're taking a penalty shot in overtime in a do or die game. It's an insane amount of pressure for anyone, let alone a 19 year old. So this kind of. Bullying and tough talk over keyboards just rubs me the wrong way. It's a new year, time for resolutions. So how about we just resolve to be a little bit nicer? Failing that, how about this? Here's just a general rule for life. Don't type or tweet or post something online unless you have the guts to say it to that person's face. If you want to say it to their face, don't write it online. I actually want to start the new year by uh, taking your some of your calls, hearing from you guys on this. So we'll open up the phone lines, 519-643-2222-1866, 1866 354 55 are the phone numbers to call. It's been a while since I've taken calls. I think this is a good time to do it. If you want to call, do it now. We can talk World Juniors, we can talk bullying, we can talk cyberbullying, uh, but we've got a pretty full show. So this is the only time we've got for calls today. So you want in. Now's the time. 519 643 22 1866 354 8255 are the numbers to call. We got some people already getting in on the lines. So we're going to take a break. When we come back. I want to hear from you. I want your calls, your takes. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. I'll be back in from tomorrow as well. Mike will be back with you on Monday talking about bullying and cyberbullying to start the program today in light of the World Junior game from last night. We can talk about the World Juniors as well. Canada lost 2-1 in overtime to Finland. Heartbreaking loss. You want them to win. You expect them to win gold, but it's not the end of the world. They tried hard. They put their all on the ice. And that's the great thing about sports. One of the reasons I love sports, I think everyone should, when you're a kid, play sports. You learn valuable lessons from it. And again, not not everything goes your way. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and those victories taste uh, all that much better after you've uh, tasted some defeat as well. And unfortunately, it was a hard loss Last night, but that's the way it goes. Five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two one eight six six three five four eighty two fifty five are the phone numbers to call. We'll be taking your calls until the bottom of uh, the hour here, so give us a call now. We'll start with uh, Dave. Dave, thanks for calling in.
1: Oh, it's great. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand people doing doing that to a nineteen year old kid or eighteen year old kid, like. But you know what they should be complaining about is the refereeing in it, <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's that's the worst I've ever ever seen but uh they shouldn't be uh, going after a kid
0: no i mean right? I, I understand you're upset i mean oh so was i it's, and i was
1: going like oh my gosh but the, you know the penalties they were calling they're not even penalties right and and the worst thing is the newspapers and and talk shows don't don't go after the refereeing on it and uh, they say well it's the way the the europeans are and don't like it don't watch it
0: right yeah well i mean refereeing in every sport i mean i i don't in generally I, th- I think in hockey like so many sports we can we can move more to automation in terms of cameras and just take the officials off the ice and you get a better view you need someone on the ice obviously to drop the puck mm-hmm. and do everything but uh, i think officiating yeah, in all sports could be better uh, but as long as it's equal for both sides then it is what it is
1: well yeah but you know like the first game the penalty shots like even the announcers on uh, on TSN said, holy man, that's not a penalty in any league, <laughs> yeah. you know? When they, when they get a hooking thing and the guy touches you with a stick, I don't know. I guess we're just so used to Canadian hockey and, and North American hockey where you can hammer a guy and without getting, uh, you know, a uh, boarding penalty when actually it's not even boarding, right?
0: Yeah. Dave, so, appreciate the call. All right, bye. We'll move over to uh, Kevin next. Kevin, thanks for calling in.
2: Hi, Devin. I just want to uh just to regards to your last caller there that uh um you know the refereeing's one thing, but we just have to we had a great team, they had their opportunities, but the hockey gods, you know, allowed Finland to get that fluky tying goal and it is what it is, right?
0: Well I mean you win some, you win you lose some and I mean Everyone's talking about Maxim Contra for obvious reasons, but I mean uh, the broken stick is just—I mean that's the way it, you just—you you, kind of know what happens with that way sometimes, right? You had your chance, stick breaks, it's terrible. Play goes back the other way, and they score, and then it's over.
2: That's right, exactly. You know we had a great team. No, it's not to say we couldn't get a medal next time around, right? So, but uh, I just want to say about this bowling part, like. If this, this is against the law, then they need to do something about it. There needs to be, like, a protocol, I think, because this is unnecessary. Like, you know, if you're a true Canadian hockey fan, you wouldn't be saying such remarks anyway, right? So I would like to – would it be possible somehow, you know, if, if the, the law can get involved with these people for every message that they send that is a bullying-type message – right, that they lose their internet for that month or for a week or whatever, you know, that the law steps in and, and the companies, whether it's Rogers or Bell or whoever, you know, uh, take this uh, at, in court with the, with the police, having the police and them, you know, talk or whatever, and, and somehow this has got to stop, right? Like, this is ridiculous, you know?
0: Well, it's so uh, much different than, you know, when we were all younger and, you know, people are you know, back I, there was no cyberbullying when I was a kid, and you know, and so it's 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 so much different today. And this is even, you know, this is there's different versions of it. And the problem with some of these laws and stuff is it's just so hard to keep up with technology because technology advances so much faster than um, than than the laws, and that's the, that's always the case. Not just for cyberbullying, it's for everything.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was some way of penalizing them somehow, you know, for misusing the internet as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. Kevin, appreciate the call. Thank you. 519 643 1866 are the full numbers to call. Talking about the World Juniors. You can talk about the World Juniors if you like. Also just talking about the the reaction from some fans. Again, I'm not saying it's all Canadian fans. I'd even, I'm not even going to say it's even a majority. It's it's a sl- It's a slim minority of fans. Uh, but the uh, the treatment uh, Maxime Comtois got after the game was just uh, was unfair. And uh, something tells me if the shoe were on your the foot, these people who are uh, trolling just to see the world burn, had the comments directed in their way, they'd uh, be feeling a little bit different on this. Let's go to uh, Bob next. Bob, thanks for calling in.
3: Hey, Devin. Happy New Year to you.
0: Happy New Year to you.
3: Thank you, sir. Yeah, I'll tell you that uh, that tying goal, man, that was like the Kennedy bullet deflection of hockey. <laughs> you know, I, I I watched that thing and uh, and it appeared to me that hit the side of the that come back down right. The guy shoots, goes off the lower shin pad of his player, hits the hits the uh, blade of the goalie stick, hits the shaft and rolls up over the shoulder. I, think I'm, I have to watch that five times. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But it is what it is. It happens right every now and then. But man, yeah, the hockey gods, right.
0: Well, it's fluky, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, um, that, even that goal, like you, you're watching, I was watching it. I didn't even realize it kind of went in. But then you see the replay and it just as if the, the puck had a mind of its own.
3: Yeah, did that go? It did. It, it appear to go off the, our defenseman's stick too, didn't it deflect off his his uh, blade and then go up over DePetro's shoulder?
0: Might have, yeah. I mean, it kind of yeah. went went up and it hit the top corner, so it must have. Man, it, it that, yeah, that still. whole
3: sequence was just like the hockey guys were were po for some reason. I don't know what the heck went on, but hey, that's the game, you know. We're gonna, you know, what we should be talking about too is in that tournament is, is how good these other countries are getting. Like when you, I see Switzerland and Finland now. I mean, these guys are, you know, they're they're catching everybody else. So well,
0: that's a good thing. I mean, you know, it's it's Canada, Russia have all the history of the two countries have won most of the gold medals. But you go over the past, you know, five, ten years, you've had uh, Finland's one, Sweden's one. Uh, Canada, Russia, United States, maybe the Czechs might have got one in there as well, so sure. it's it 's a better tournament because of uh, the depth we now see
3: yeah, and I think it 's a lot better I mean you know uh, it, it was it 's kind of heartbreaking to watch a team like Denmark you know go through what they did uh you know pummeled every game, and uh, hopefully they can uh, you know bring their play up uh, but uh you know uh, in terms of the penalty shot i mean i 'm not going to criticize but I don't know, if I look at that roster, I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I think there's probably two or three guys in that team that have a really high uh, skill set, and they can go in and make that goalie move a little bit and open them up, maybe had a better opportunity, but, you know, it didn't happen. Um, and in terms of the bullying, you know, I, mean, I understand that. It's, uh, you're going to get these people. It, the, people like that were out there uh, before we had any of these modern-day uh, uh, social media. And you know, because I remember you know playing hockey or oh, yeah. being in rinks, and you hear parents saying things and people saying things. So I think what people just have to do is like the old-fashioned way: you just ignore it. You just ignore the words, and you you know you don't you don't give them any attention. And it's probably a small majority that are doing that anyway. So uh, you know, don't don't uh, let these people get to you. You just slough it off, and you say you know, call them what they are. We can't say that on the radio, but. uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'll be back next year and think it'll be better. But uh, yeah, interesting anyway. There's a lot more tournament to go and a lot more good hockey to uh, to watch anyway.
0: Indeed. Bob, appreciate the call. Okay. We'll go to uh, Ted next. Ted, thanks for calling in.
3: Hi. Uh, I've never called you before. Uh, I
1: remember hockey from the time I started following it in the middle 50s when we used to send those, those uh, senior teams over to play the Russians. And for a long time we kicked butt. And then I remember in the 60s when the Russians used to just destroy us. I first remember the first game in the Summit Series when we got beat seven to three or something, and we were the whole the whole country was in a mess. Well, since then we've improved internationally, and hockey has improved. And I didn't have any trouble with them losing that game last night. I had a when you follow hockey for, or sports for a long time, you have a sense that they've got to get the second goal, and that didn't happen. And if you play any kind of net, you know the puck can go in a million different ways, and bounce. It's, it's not the hockey gods, Bob. It's the bounce the bad bounces, because that's the way the
0: game is. Indeed. Ted, appreciate the call. I mean, there was a. we only got a couple minutes here, so uh, appreciate all the calls. Um, I'll just end with this, because there was a funny little moment that I saw, I, th- I think it was from last night's game, even not, it was pretty recent. Sidney Crosby's in, uh, in New York, playing in the Garden against the Rangers, and there was this cool thing where he had one penalty, but throughout the entire game, there was this one Rangers fan who was just chirping him Relentlessly. Um, and and so the story was after the game, this guy's getting ready to go, and the penguins equipment manager comes over and gives the the fan a, a city a stick that Sidney Crosby has signed, uh saying, I think I don't have the exact picture right in front of me, he said, but good chirps, uh be nice, be nicer to me next time, Sidney Crosby number eighty seven. So the guy chirps Sidney. And now this is—I'm not saying this is bullying or anything like that. This is just a fan being a fan, and fans in the section got a kick out of it. One of the chirps was, I think, um, uh, "Hey Sid, uh, Raid was looking for someone uh, manly to uh, be their spokesperson. They thought of you, but ended up going with Justin Bieber. Something like that was the whole thing. And so Sidney Crosby got a kick out of it, gave him a sign, signed uh, stick, and you know that, that's the not that this guy's. I'm not saying this guy's a bully, but you know the one way to respond to uh, that kind of thing is with some humor and some fun, and you uh, you uh, dial it down every an, a notch or two and uh, a neat little story. But uh, hey, Canada sometimes wins, sometimes loses. Unfortunately, this time they lost, and unfortunately, the real loss is all these uh, trolls online who have. Uh, Come out, made themselves known, and will now be going back under their rocks. We need to stop and come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. I want to continue with the New Year's theme and talk about everyone's favorite subject: money. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL, London Live. Uh, The economy is trucking along, but there are some warning signs for the future. The biggest problem is the United States and China and their back and forth. Brexit's also a concern. The fact that we keep racking up uh, huge deficits, also uh, a big issue. On a more individual basis, consider this. Canadian debt to income levels are above the pre-U.S. Great Recession peak. This is Canadian debt. Uh, many people spend quite a bit in December, only to regret it when they see their credit card statement in January. January often viewed as a blue month as people consider their financial situation. What should you know as we enter a new year and deal with all that holiday spending? Let's talk to Lori Campbell, the CEO of Credit Canada, about that. Lori, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Well, this is, you know, a time of year when uh, people maybe are dreading opening uh, their uh, credit card statements uh, about uh, uh, all they spent in November and December. Although, you know, when you look at some of our debt levels right now, it's maybe not just January when people have that sort of dread. It might be uh, 12 months a year. Um, But just in terms of uh, managing everything, what what sort of, you know, financial, you know, you know, pitfalls are present uh, right now for a lot of Canadians?
4: Well, I think you you really are, are quite clear, Devin, when you say that people dread opening up their credit card statements. In fact, people sometimes don't even open up their credit card statements, which is part of the problem. I think there's a, there's a sense of denial that things will be better next month or things will be better in the future without really recognizing that People need to take their own control over their financial situation. And, you know, by doing so, it means, you know, really figuring out where you are financially, what your debt loads are, what your income is, and where your expenses are going. And actually, keeping a journal sometimes helps just to figure out where you're at each day, each week, each month, and to ensure that you're getting further ahead with your financial situation. You're not falling back into that trap of using credit over and over again.
0: It's interesting. That's an interesting, uh, I've never heard that before, but but it makes sense because people do that type of thing. If you're looking to lose weight, you know, you make a whole journal of what you eat every day and and where you can cut back and be a bit healthier. So it, it stands to reason the same practice would work if you're looking to save some money.
4: Yeah, exactly. And what we're trying to look at is triggers. Like, What triggers you to spend? Did you have a bad day? Did you just feel like you needed a little pick-me-up? You know, you didn't feel like making dinner, so you just felt it would be easier to order in? And those types of things. And you start to see a pattern of of how and why you spend money, and and start to see a pattern of where you can cut back, and and then start looking at your overall financial goals. Because the truth is is that if you don't have some significant goals, and I'm not talking about resolutions. It's the new year, and everyone's got resolutions, and while I understand that, I think that that's a tough one um, to have these grand resolutions. I'm going to lose, you know, get rid of all my debt in 2019. But instead, write down some goals that you want to see over short, medium, long term. That makes it more achievable. And it also makes you um, think twice about spending money when you know you have these goals.
0: One of the problems for people is that they maybe, is it, is it that they feel they don't have that power over their own uh, financial situation?
4: Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a certain uh, fear and powerlessness about uh, financial difficulties. And, you know, the other thing, Devin, is people don't talk about it. It's like this hidden secret, you know, well, I have debt, but I'm not going to tell anybody. My parents don't know. Uh, my my uh, family doesn't know. My friends don't know, whatever the case may be. But I, I think that's part of the problem. People need to open up and discuss their financial uh, issues. Like at Credit Canada, one of the biggest things that we often hear is that people have never talked about their financial situation to anybody. So there's a, there's a huge amount of stress around money. There's a huge amount of, of shame around uh, how people are um, managing their money or how they're managing their debt. And as a result, they often feel helpless about where to turn and what to do about it.
0: What can uh, people do about it? Maybe just to uh, give themselves a bit of a, maybe a safety valve in case uh, something happens and they need to, they need to access some, some money.
4: Right. So the first thing is to feel to know you're not alone. Like there's a lot of people that are struggling with financial difficulties. Know that you're you're not alone. Um, that's important so that you don't feel like a failure. Uh, that's number one. Two, if you don't have debt, start an emergency fund if you don't have one because you know we're looking at a very tough 2019. It, it's pretty evident that that the debts have never been higher, the economy is a little bit shaky right now, interest rates are going up. So we can see, uh, it doesn't take much to, to see that there could be some problems in 2019. Get an emergency fund in place, start saving a little bit over time. Don't access it unless it's an actual emergency. That's number one. Two, if you have debt, start getting rid of those high-interest debts now. Um, Start doing it while you're working and while you have the income to do it, because should you lose your job or should there be a downturn in the economy, uh, which could mean other financial strains, you want to make sure you've got your debt under control. Uh, Talk to your family members about your financial situation. Make it a family affair so that Children are wondering why you're not ordering pizza every Friday night, or you know you're supposed to know spending money while you're trying to save. That's very, very important. If you can't do it on your own, go to a not-for-profit credit counseling service like Credit Canada. The counseling is free, confidential, not judgmental, and you'll actually be able to talk to somebody that perhaps you've never even disclosed your financial situation to
0: before. Do you find that helps people where it's, you know, it's, it's maybe someone you haven't talked to before, which could be maybe a bit intimidating, but it's on the other hand, it's someone you haven't talked before. Maybe if you have some, you're embarrassed, maybe a bit of a shame, you don't want to talk about with friends or family, having that person that maybe you've never met before, but can help you in this situation might be something people would prefer rather than going to someone, they, you know, you know, a parent or a sibling.
4: Absolutely, you know, because the thing about it is you're talking to an expert, you're talking to somebody who's heard this many, many times before, so it's not like you're, uh, you're going to shock them or anything like that. You're talking to someone who's compassionate, but at the same time can help you Look at your full financial situation and look at options for you. And it's very important, I I stress this, Devin, that people do not fall victim to these internet hypes that say they'll improve your credit rating or they can knock your debt down by half. Don't fall victim to that. There's a lot of scammers out there um, that that really prey on individuals that are stressed out and uh, feeling really rough about their financial situation.
0: Do you find you see uh, more people in January than maybe some other months? I know it's it's not a one-month issue, but uh, January is a month where people can feel a bit uh, down about their finances
4: you know, January, February are very busy months for us for Zach's uh, reasons you mentioned, it, you know, the weather's not great, they've spent a lot over the holidays, they're feeling rather down about their financial situation, but the good part is is they want to maybe start off the new year right and get back on track and, and, and get rid of this situation once and for all. Another really busy time for us is September, probably for the same reasons, um, you know, get off to a fresh start. So whatever time of year um, it is, we are quite busy simply because of the indebtedness of Canadians, but certainly this time of year for sure. It's
0: never uh, too late uh, to get a handle on your finances. Lori. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
4: Oh, thank you very much and Happy New Year.
0: That's Lori Campbell, CEO of Credit Canada. We need to pause and come back more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Have you seen the forecast lately? Pretty good. Had plus temperatures yesterday afternoon, plus one today, plus six tomorrow, plus four on Saturday, plus one on Sunday, plus two on Monday, plus two on Tuesday. Now, you contrast that to last winter, which began in November, didn't let up until April. This winter, much better. I don't want to jinx things, but looks like we could have a mild winter on our hands here. That's not good news for those who base their living on the weather, but there's a yin and a yang to it all. Those who base their living on warmer temperatures maybe had the opposite opinion last year. What will our winter be like? To get an idea, let's talk to Environment Canada meteorologist Gerald Chang. Thanks for your time today.
5: Uh, no problem.
0: It's, uh, it's been uh, kind of a, a mild winter, I think, uh, for London so far. I know if you look at maybe historical norms right now, we're kind of where we normally should be, but it just seems as though it's been a bit milder so far, uh, less snow so far.
5: It has been mild and uh, certainly coming out of November when it was uh, well below seasonal, as quite a contrast uh, to the December that we've had. Um, And it's still going to stay mild for a bit and uh, at least for the next two weeks for London. So uh, if people like the mild weather, I hope uh, (laughs) they're happy about that.
0: Beyond the next uh, two weeks, is it? Uh, are we looking like? I mean, obviously, winter has to happen at some point. You can't avoid it. This is Canada, but are we looking at maybe more of a wild, a milder winter in general, or what's that kind of outlook like?
5: Well, the jury is still out. To be really honest, because at first we thought that. This uh, We are noticing that there is El Nino, but it's a weak episode of El Nino. So compared to, let's say, uh, the winter uh, two years ago, 2015-2016, uh, that was a really warm winter. And uh, because it's a weak one, we don't know if all that warmth uh, from Western Canada is going to push its way into Southern Ontario. And that's why we've been hesitant to say that, oh, it is going to be above seasonal, especially, uh, especially given the, the, the colder, much colder November that we had. Um, and uh, having said that, what we're seeing is that it should be, this winter should be normal uh, or near normal. So just be careful because we are using up a lot of quota of the milder weather of this winter. So I'm not so sure that as we get to the latter half of winter, it's going to stay
0: mild. So when when you have the El Nino situation, that generally, I mean, the recipe for that is like like two years ago. It's a bit of a, a milder temperature situation then.
5: Right, because uh, it affects mostly Western Canada, but a lot of that warmth could travel eastward into Ontario, and and for that year, we were above seasonal, well above seasonal, uh, and there was uh, generally less precipitation because uh, a lot of the storm tracks, uh, the storm track was displaced, so the storms didn't go through uh, southern Ontario, and that's why London was spared. Now, this one, a weak one, we're not so sure. The signals are not very clear. So for now, we, we don't have enough precipitation uh, because if we check back in December, uh, 67.1 millimeters versus the normal 87.5 millimeters. So we were about uh, 20 mils short. Uh, And it's been—we haven't been getting these big snowstorms or uh, big lake effects uh, through the area. So uh, we will have to see and monitor the next few weeks how that goes. Uh,
0: You you mentioned uh, a moment ago just about how we might be using up some of our uh, (laughs) our mild temperatures. (laughs) Um, Could that maybe does that maybe for a longer term forecast? I know you can only say, with accuracy so much just because of some of the uncertainty, just about what, you know, the strength of the El Nino, but could it be a situation where maybe, you know, February into March, it's, it's really cold, but there's not as much snow, or can you not have the snow without the cold?
5: Well, you can have the cold without the snow. And vice versa, you can have the snow without the cold, and um, it really depends on the situation of the week, the situation of the day. Um, because we've been so mild, I'm just I just don't want people to get their hopes up that <laughs> oh this is going to be <laughs> warmer winter than usual. It's not going to be brutal. Uh, that's that. Uh, that may not be the case. We could still have some very cold uh, waves coming. Uh, it's just we haven't seen them yet. That uh, doesn't mean that it, they're not going to happen.
0: Does the El, the presence of the El Niño, to whatever degree the, the strength of it is, does that tell anything about uh, the possibility of like uh, an earlier spring than maybe we had last year? Or can is that does that relate it to it whatsoever?
5: I think that's a bit wishful thinking. Uh, We will see. (laughs) We will see. I don't know because I talk to people, and uh, generally, people like. The warmth and they like the, the no snow situation, but certainly some people really want the snow, especially skiers, snowboarders, and if their livelihoods depend on snow. So uh, we'll have to see. And don't forget that last year, it was a really long winter. It started in November and ended in April. So that was full six months. Just keep that in mind that you know it can happen again, that we could have a longer uh, end to the winter.
0: Is there anything to, because uh, people will say, well, we had like, you know, a, a long winter last year, so that means this year's winter is going to be shorter. Is is it cyclical like that, or is that just, that's just, <laughs> that's just an old wives' tale?
5: I think it's just people, they want to forget the long winter that they had last year. And uh, and full disclosure, too, is that what I thought was going to be a warm November, it turned out to be really cold. Um, so, it just... Just keep in mind that the seasonal forecast, when we look very far into the long range, uh, one anomaly, one cold wave or warm wave will throw the forecast right off. So uh, that's why it's really important to really look at the day-to-day weather for us.
0: As a meteorologist, is this uh, the time of year when people ask you more about the weather? Is it summer or what's the best time to be a meteorologist? Uh, For me, the
5: best time is really summer because, uh, well, I like summer to start with. And second, I think there is uh, summer forecasting, summer weather forecasting is much more challenging because with thunderstorms, you are almost... You, you always have to be reactionary almost, whereas in the wintertime with big storms, we can sort of see them coming and we can warn well ahead and people are more prepared. And uh, uh, I would almost say that it's less challenging, uh, but it affects a wider, a much wider population because it's such usually we're talking about storms that span thousands of kilometers.
0: Interesting. Uh, Gerald, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. No problem. Have a wonderful day. That's Gerald Chang from Environment Canada. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike will be back with you on Monday. You can catch uh, Mike, though, with the uh, London Knights tonight on 980 CFPL. Knights are in St. Catharines to play the Niagara Ice Dogs. Pre-game on 980 CFPL is at 6.30. Puck drop is at 7 o'clock. Nights uh, ho- on the road uh, tonight. Home uh, tomorrow night. Uh, the, tonight's game will be their first of 2019. They ended uh, 2018 by uh, easily, handily beating the Sarnia Sting on uh, New Year's Eve. In the uh, second hour of the program, we've got a lot coming up. We'll talk about uh, distracted driving. We'll uh, with the new penalties coming in. I'm 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 really intrigued by the financial aspect of the new penalties, if that's enough to change driver behavior or or not. On Friday's program, we will be talking to uh, Brian Patterson from the Ontario Safety League about uh, this as well. So I, I think it's interesting in terms of how you curb this behavior, and we've heard police say a number of times distracted driving, deadlier on the roads than even impaired driving, but is a a habit? Is it more difficult to bring about change than, say, speeding, wearing your seatbelt, or impaired driving, or is that something you can really measure? So we'll get into that to today and tomorrow. But for today, we'll be talking about distracted driving with former London Police Chief uh, Murray Faulkner. We'll get his response also to the uh, review that was uh, released earlier this week from uh, Justice uh, Michael Tullock about uh, carding. His review found that uh, It is uh, uh, not the best method of uh, solving crimes or making arrests. We'll talk about uh, the price of glasses. might sound like kind of a nothing segment. I think it's interesting, though, in terms of just how there is one company out there that just dominates the worldwide glasses market talk about New Year's and much more on the other side. We'll take a break. When we come back, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike will be back on Monday. The new year always brings us a change in the form of new laws, new penalties. This year was no different. New distracted driving penalties came into effect on January 1st. That's also when the long-awaited review on carting was released. On distracted driving, here are the new rules. Motorists convicted of driving while distracted, including texting while behind the wheel, will have their license suspended for three days, First time fines now range between six hundred and fifteen dollars and a thousand dollars up from the previous minimum of four hundred and ninety. Drivers will also be docked three to mirror points for a first distracted driving offense on carding a three hundred and ten page report by appeal court Justice Michael Tu concluded there is little to no proof carding has had an effect on the level of crime or arrests. Tulloch says some police forces reported other ways to gather and use data they already have rather than stopping people randomly and asking for identifying information. He has listed a series of recommendations that includes the government changing the regulation to state that no police officer should arbitrarily stop individuals to request their identifying information as well as increased training for officers on the practice. Police have long argued that street checks have value as an investigative tool, a notion that he challenged in his report. You may remember that back in 2016, Ontario introduced new rules dictating that police must inform people they don't have to provide identifying information during street checks and that refusing to cooperate or walking away cannot be used as reasons to compel information. Now, Talaik did say street checks have value in cases where there are clear suspicious circumstances or when police need to identify a missing person or a crime victim. To uh, talk about all of this, we're joined by former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. Thanks for your time today. How are you? I'm doing very good. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And to you. And uh, we're crying about Team Canada, but... We're moving on. We are. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, hey, at least least they're done so we can uh, get uh, Evan Bouchard back with the Knights and and (laughs) playing with them. (laughs) I really hope so. Uh, Hopefully he doesn't, uh, as he, he wouldn't be driving back, but if he were, if he's uh, driving back, hopefully he's not uh, checking his phone while he does because we have some new distracted driving laws. Um, Do you think these new penalties anyway will make a difference? Well, uh, you know, i
6: I think, first of all, it will definitely heighten the importance of not uh, talking, texting, or sending emails on your cell phone. Um, so I think, uh, I think the proof will be in the pudding as to is uh, the penalties – reducing the number of distracted driving accidents and fatalities, and that will have to wait. I will say, though, that uh, you know, necessarily increasing the fines and the punishment for certain offenses does not necessarily mean an increase in enforcement. I can remember when seatbelt legislation came in and we were still getting very minimal amount of compliance, and they doubled the fines for seatbelts. Uh, seatbelt tickets did not increase proportionally. Uh, I think because, you know, contrary to what some of the public might believe, police officers do have a heart, and uh, they were giving out warnings more than issuing tickets. So we'll have to see about this. I mean, uh, first offense, maximum fine of $1,000, three demerit points, and a three-day license suspension, Uh, that's pretty heavy stuff.
0: Well, I mean, like penal- uh, the penalties for distracted driving here is like almost like seatbelts. I mean, it's 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 different than uh, alcohol, where you can at least set up a checkpoint and you can't just you know make your uh, the booze on your breath disappear in five seconds. But with distracted driving, if if you're, if it's with your phone, maybe with your seatbelt, a little bit different. But that's something where it's a little bit you got to catch that person in the act.
6: Yeah, I think you know. It- what this should do is is reinforce in drivers of, of regardless of what age whether you 're a new driver or a driver that's been driving for thirty five forty or fifty years that driving is a privilege number one and number two it's all related to one's cognitive ability so so really there are three types of distraction that 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 we know of, is that there's visual, mechanical, and cognitive. Now, so when I say what's visual, well, maybe looking in the back seat if your child drops something. Mechanical is probably reaching for your glove box to get something out, but cognitive, cognitive is what I'm talking about, is talking on the phone. And, and, um, what cognitive impairment does it? It, it really gives you inattention, inattentive blindness, or what I would call tunnel vision. So, if you're driving your car and you're not uh, talking on a phone, usually your line of sight is probably from curb to curb. But when you get talking, your mind uh, gets more focused on your conversation. And the problem is you don't know that. And so now your, your field division has gone from curb to curb to probably just a single lane in front of you. And so when you multiply the distraction times your speed and the ability to stop, which includes your reaction time, applying your brakes and physically stopping your car you know at fifty kilometers an hour that's about fourteen meters a second so when you add three-quarters of a second to one and a half seconds reaction time then putting your foot on the brake and then and then physically stopping that vehicle you you know you've traveled five six seven car lengths just at fifty kilometers an hour and so So the distracted driving is really all connected to to the time, distance, reaction, uh, and that's why it's such uh, a problem. The other thing, though, I will say that I think there's – what people don't understand is that whether you're talking on a cell phone, handheld, or whether you're talking on a hands-free, this uh, cognitive distraction uh, happens when you're using uh, both types of of, uh, mechanical devices.
0: Do you think financial penalties or the threat of that are enough to get people to change their mind, in this case, distracted driving, but for anything, really? Well, I think that's, that's
6: what the hope is by our government and our legislature, that, that uh, you know, a second offense within five years is $2,000 and six demerit points, seven-day suspension, and subsequent offenses in the five years, $3,000 and a 30-day license suspension? Um, so, so I think that's what the hope is that this, it will reduce, but I, I, I just think that our society now has so many things in a vehicle to be distracted from that, um, this is a whole new uh, ball game that we just have to keep hammering away to the public on.
0: We've uh, talked about this in the past, and I know when we've talked about this in the past, you've uh, said you believe technology ultimately is what you think will provide the answer for some of this. I
6: stuff. sure do. Uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, my crystal ball says not, I don't know what technology it will be, <laughs> but I, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure it will be. One of the technologies will be, of course, is autonomous vehicles where actually you're not driving it. So, yeah, you can talk on your cell phone, you can work on your laptop, because you're not physically in charge of the vehicle. So that, to me, will probably be one of the answers for uh, distracted driving.
0: wanted to ask you about karting uh, as well. We had this review from Justice Michael Tulloch mm-hmm. that came out uh, for the new year. The mm-hmm. conclusion of the review was, uh, he said, there's little to no proof kartings had an effect on the level of crime or arrests. Uh, Did the conclusion surprise you?
6: No, I think that was a foregone conclusion. Even though there was a 300-page report, uh, the writing was on the wall. Uh, Do I agree with Justice Tulloch with all due respect? Uh, No. To a certain degree, he's correct. But the problem is you can never uh, quantify proactive policing and that's what stopping and talking to people on the street is all about uh... hopefully that you prevent it so you stop and talk to a young person at three o'clock in the morning that young person who was going to maybe break into your car uh... steal from your backyard uh, or break into a a business now thinks twice because all the police stopped and talked to me So how do you know that you prevented something So you have to go back to looking at modern-day policing and how is police forces set up structurally and staffing. So when you look at staffing models of of major police services, you look at two different quantities. One is reactive time, calls for service, and one is proactive time. And the, the mix. The best mix is between 60-40 and 70-30. 70% you're reacting and 30% you're proactive policing. And so carting is really part of that, or stopping and talking to people uh, is part of the proactive side of policing. So I I don't see anywhere, you know, Toronto's gone through this significant increase in homicides, and I won't say that, that the increase in homicides or police shooting is totally linked. Uh, to carding. But I will say that I think there is a nexus between police getting out of their car, stop and talking to people. You know, in 2013, police uh, uh, spoke to 196,000 people in 2013. This is just Toronto police statistics. And in 2015 and 2016, they, they didn't stop and talk or card anybody. And, and in the first six months of 2018 it's one, so I really think there is a connection between the proactive side of policing and crime, but you can't measure it and that's the problem. They just look at statistics you can't look at that 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 spin off of of communicating and being involved with the community at large. Uh, I know that different groups have ta- talked about the the uh, ethical side of of carding and that is stopping to talk those and uh you know from the visible minority community and and certainly if that happens within policing because people are stopped for the sole reason of the color of their skin that is totally wrong
0: how do you think police forces are viewed because that was going to be my next question like one of the arguments i've heard from a lot of people saying ending carding because of that data, which has shown a lot of, in a lot of cases, that does happen, uh, that at least those the visible minorities are the ones disproportionately stopped, that could help community relations. So could there, be, in terms of how police forces are viewed, how do you think they're viewed in the light of all of this or just in general?
6: Let, let, me, get, let me go back to the, the scenario of being stopped. We can go back to distracted driving. I know... Uh, working in traffic, at the number of years I did as a constable, then as a the sergeant in charge of traffic, that a when a motorist gets stopped by police, there is a heightened level of anxiety. So Devin, when you get stopped by police and you don't know why, you, you you've got this heightened level of anxiety. I think you'll be. I think most people do. Yep. And and so that when you get stopped, walking or or driving at night. Regardless of the reason why, there's a heightened level of anxiety, and I think a lot of that is is vocalized about the carding issue. And so I really think that uh, you know our, our society has for example London is, is it costs over a hundred million dollars for police costs for the taxpayers of the city of london it's and like they've hired uh, the scenario i would use is that you've hired a a watchdog to look after your your junkyard but the watchdog is on a one-foot chain and so it's no surprise to me that certain types of crime and maybe you can't connect it with carding are on the increase and and so i think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg uh, in relation to uh, how how carding has affected uh, certain types of, of crime. And definitely the proactive side of policing has gotten far less than it ever has before. So if you think 196,000 people were spoken to in 2013 and none, there is, there is an impact on, uh, I would say, the safety of one's community.
0: How do you measure the success uh, or failure, I guess, of carding then?
6: Well how do you, but no but you got to go back to proactive policing you can't measure that, but we just know intrinsically that that by stopping and talking to people it will prevent it will prevent crime it will but you can't measure that. I bet you uh Justice Tulloch's report spoke to very few frontline police officers who from day to day see what happens uh on the streets and and so um
0: well, it, it was interesting. He did say that they, they, street checks have value in some cases where there are clear, suspicious circumstances or when police need to identify uh, the, a missing person or a crime victim. But here's
6: the issue. The rules and regulations around carding and to submit a uh, contact card, an observation slip, modern, uh, techno- modern terms now as carding, but it was never known as that, mm-hmm. requires the officer to say, number one, You don't have to talk to me, and you don't have to give me your name. And if I take down the information, I'm going to give you a piece of paper with my name and number and the phone number so you can complain about me. So you tell me, if you're up to no good, what are you going to do when the policeman stops to talk to you? And that refusal is not grounds for arrest.
0: In the previous world, I mean, someone would you know, would tell the police officer, but would they, like, how how much information in that in that interaction do they have to give? And Well, oh, they don't have to give anything now. No, but before. Before? Well, I don't know if it was
6: they had to give it. That, that certainly raises one suspicion if the person says, I'm not going to tell you who I am, and I'm not going to tell you why I'm behind this garage at 2 or 30 in the morning. <laughs> Uh, See, there's no practicality to our regulations right now. Well, I mean, the, and, and I will say that I think many frontline police officers are doing a disservice by not, not carting as they should have. You know, society definitely does change. We, we used to, we used to many, many years ago, uh, not keep statistical information on ethnicity, on race. The police were then hammered. Uh, When they did keep track of that, I I think that uh, one of our chiefs, Julian Fantino, got in trouble in Toronto when he kept statistics. So, you know, policing goes in and out of all these, uh, what we should do and what we shouldn't do, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Um, And so I understand society changes, but, you know, what doesn't change is basic human behavior.
0: The review, finally, just before we, we run out of time, sure. uh, the review also said Tulloch uh, said some police forces reported other ways to gather and use data they already have, rather than stopping people randomly and asking for identifying information. What other ways uh, you, could that be? I don't be? know. You tell me. Because I, I, I didn't see too much. I mean, that's that's yeah. a
6: nice statement. It rolls off one's tongue nice. But what other means? The trouble is he omits the act of proactive policing. Yes, police can use information that they have, but if you don't have the information to begin with, how do you? You know, you can't use what you don't have.
0: So, I mean, I mean, there were there were recommendations in the report, but if I mean, is, the, is the report then somewhat incomplete? Then because I mean, if there's other,
6: I, I think the report is skewed a bit towards uh, the fact that I think it was predetermined prior to the report ever being written, and and I think that that when he makes the statement that. Police can use information that they have, but the point is if you don't if you don't have that information, you can't use it.
0: Former Police Chief uh, Murray Faulkner, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure, sir. That's former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. We need to pause. When we return, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. So yeah, I mean, what is the cure for distracted driving? Ultimately, you know, I think technology is the answer, and t- the technology already exists. It's, it's maybe it's it's more willpower because you can put your phone on do not disturb. I mean, and you know, I've got I've got an Apple iPhone. You can put it on do not disturb when it. Feel when it detects movement similar to a car, it will go on do not disturb. And so any text, any uh, updates won't come through. You won't get a notification. You can just uh, keep on driving. So the technology already exists, but uh, the willpower to turn it on and the willpower to, if you turn it on, not turn it off, so you can check your phone when you're a car, uh, is is all you. In the end, like I've been talking about automated vehicles for a while. And I I can't wait for the day they are a real thing. Whenever that day comes. I, don't, I mean I don't know. You could be super aggressive in your forecasting and say maybe 5-10 years, maybe. Certainly 10 closer to 5, but I mean there's lots of testing going on right now. There are, you know, some cities in the United States where you have some automated vehicles on the roads already in small quantities it's it's by no means uh, a mainstream phenomenon but uh, it just feels as though it's coming and the other thing too even to bring it around to you know London and the automated vehicle discussion city council is going to be having this year in terms of how it relates to our rapid transit plan Automated vehicles are not a solution to any deficiencies we have with rapid transit in this city or with public transit in the city. I do think, though, city council needs to seriously look at how Londoners, Canadians will want to and will be drawn to automated vehicles as opposed to public transit in some form of car sharing company that's going to come along because one will. And the projections that it has for public transit. That's not to say you don't do anything with public transit, but I think that has to be accounted for more than it has been so far. But that's a conversation for another day. Well, we need to stop on the other side of the news. I want to talk about the price of eyewear and why it just costs uh, so darn much to get glasses. That and more on the other side. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everyone. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to go back to last year when I was at the optometrist getting my eyes checked and uh, getting some new glasses. And here's the curse that comes with being in news. While I was picking out some new frames, my mind kept going back to a 60 minutes piece that I saw a couple years ago on the eyewear industry. Basically... There is one major company in the world that has a stranglehold on the industry. Luxottica, that's their name. You may not have heard about them. That's kind of the point. Luxottica dominates in the glasses and sunglasses market. They've got about 60% of the worldwide market. And I wanted to talk about them for a couple minutes today. So Luxottica own a lot. (laughs) Not only do they own Ray-Ban and Oakley, but they also own Lens Crafters, they own Sunglass Hut, they own Pearl Vision, they own Sears Optical, they own Glasses.com, they own iMed, that's an insurance provider for eyewear. They also design glasses for premium brands such as Chanel, Versace, Ralph Lauren, uh, Dolce Gabbana, Burberry, and on and on and on. They're everywhere. They control so much of the market that they can set the price, which is why the prices for glasses can be so high. So I'm at the optometrist, and I decide to get some prescription sunglasses, and I pick out a nice pair. Want to guess the cost? You'll never guess. $700. (laughs) They weren't spectacular. They were sunglasses. $700. Dollars. I'm all for seeing correctly and protecting your eyes, but I'm not going to spend $700 on sunglasses. But when you own the glasses and you own the stores that sell them, you've got a lot of power, even if I'm at the optometrist. So here's an eye-opening portion from that 60 Minutes report. I want to play a couple clips from it just because I think this is interesting. I think this is something people should be aware of. So this is a clip featuring Leslie Stahl. She did the piece. It was very, very good. She's talking to Brett Ahrens from smartmoney.com and then to Andrea Guerrera, who was the CEO of Luxadia at the time the report aired.
7: Is there a free market in eyewear? No, I don't think there really is. I think one company has uh, excessive dominance of the market.
8: SmartMoney.com columnist
7: Brett Ahrens says the appearance of variety is an optical illusion. The reality is, it's like you know, it's like pro wrestling competition. It's actually fake competition. Consider what happened to Oakley, the world-famous maker of advanced sports eyewear. Oakley was a big competitor, and they had a fight with Luxottica, and. Luxottica basically said, "We're dropping you from our stores," and Oakley, they
8: refused to sell their glasses. And yeah, it was a
7: dispute about pricing, and they dropped Oakley from the stores. And Oakley's stock price collapsed. How is Oakley going to reach the consumer if they
9: can't get their sunglasses in Sunglass Hut? There were some issues between the two companies in uh, the beginning of the 2000s, but both of them understood that it was better to go along.
8: Better to let you buy them.
9: Uh, I wouldn't say this. We merged with Oakley in two thousand seven. You bought Oakley. They
8: tried to compete and they lost, and then you bought them.
9: I understand your theory, but they understood that life was better together. Guerrera estimates that about five hundred million people in the
0: world wear their sunglasses. Luxottica is the reason why you pay hundreds of dollars for your glasses, unless you go to Walmart or Costco. They are a few holdouts in this just because of how large they are. They don't need to bend to Exotica's will. So here's another clip from 60 Minutes. This time you will hear Andrea Guerrera first with Leslie Stahl and then Stahl with
9: Brett Ahrens.
8: Who's your biggest competitor in the United States?
9: Uh, you could say Walmart.
8: Also Costco and emerging online companies like Warby Parker. But other competitors told us Luxottica has them in a chokehold. If you make glasses, you want to be in their stores. And if you have stores, you want to sell Ray-Bans. So Luxottica can set the prices as high as it wants.
7: Luxottica's dominance, uh, it's what's called a price maker, which means that essentially it can set prices and other people will follow in its make. Which he says is why glasses in general cost so much, even at your local opticians. The whole point of a luxury brand is to persuade people to pay $200 for a product that costs $30 to make. Well, let me show you something.
8: Why Why is it any different than my shoe?
7: Well, to some extent, may, th- <laughs> there's actually a lot of comparisons. The difference is actually that there is, you know, the entire shoe industry isn't made by one company, and the same company doesn't also own all the shoe stores.
0: I want to play one final clip from the 60 Minutes report because it gets at the core of what the issue here is, which is really a lack of choice. But really, it's what they are trying to paint as the illusion of choice. Here is Leslie Stahl with Andrea Guerrera one last time.
8: You'd think, well, surely insurance companies covering vision would complain. But guess what? Luxottica also owns the nation's second largest vision care plan, iMed, covering eye exams and glasses. What don't you own?
9: A lot of things. Not really. You (laughs) seem
8: to, really. Why not combine everything under one name?
9: I think people love diversities. People love to have different brands. People love to have different experiences.
8: It's an illusion of choice if you're all owned by the same company.
9: Uh, I think this is totally wrong. The question is what kind of choice consumer has. It's not a question of how many you own.
8: How does the consumer benefit from all of this? Your prices are still high.
9: If you go to a shoe company, would you say that their prices are high?
8: You're trying to tell me it's all worth all that money.
9: Everything is worth what people are ready to pay.
0: So when you think about it, Luxadia should really be called Hobson's, as in Hobson's choice, which is a choice between something or nothing, which isn't a choice. If you need glasses, you need glasses. But how much choice do we really have? And I'm not even just talking about sunglasses here. Consider the food industry, Nestle, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, Mondelez, PepsiCo, General Mills, Danone, and Mars are all massive, massive companies that each own dozens of brands that dominate product categories. Want some crackers for your party? Good idea. Did you know that Ritz, Triscuits, Wheat Thins, Air Crisps, and premium brand crackers are all owned by Mondelez? Those chocolate bars you like to eat, maybe you gave out at uh, Halloween? There are hundreds of chocolate bars out there, but only a few companies that make them. Mars, Nestle, and Mondelez own most of the candy bars. What about Cadbury, you ask? Well, they're owned by Mondelez. Nestle is absolutely massive. You may know that Nestle makes KitKat, Nesquik chocolate syrup, Nespresso coffee machines, and Nescafe instant coffee. What is less obvious is that Nestle owns and makes Gerber baby food, Hot Pockets, DiGiorno pizzas, and Stouffer brand frozen foods. Nestle even owns two competing brands of fancy carbonated water, San Pellegrino and Perrier. They own them both. In fact, Nestle has at least 29 brands with annual sales over $1 billion. The company literally has hundreds of different products in sectors, ranging from pet food to soup to sauce. It's the world's largest food company by revenues, and it's worth a whopping $240 billion in market capitalization. So I think about market domination when I go to buy glasses, but not at the grocery store, and I probably should. Look at how few car companies there are out there at all the different brands offering the illusion of choice. So, how much choice do we really have? How much control over our lives do we really have? These are the questions I ask uh, when I buy glasses. Don't have the answers? Something to think about. We need to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everyone. Devin Peacock. In for Mike Stubbs. When can I stop saying Happy New Year to people? <laughs> it's a weird thing. It's only January 3rd. I don't want to come across as a jerk, but I just want to say hello again. Or just a, a polite nod in the halls. I'm not good at small talk. I'm not good at people asking me how my holiday was or telling people about mine. People ask what I did, and, you know, I, I had a great time. I was with family, got to relax. It was good. Not a bunch of time off. Didn't mean to plan it, so I had so much time off, but I was basically off from December 15th to January 2nd, including weekends. So it was a good break. I just didn't take any vacation during uh, the year, apparently. So I had, a, I had a good time off. People ask what I did. I shrug. I eh, say nothing. Even if it was something. I just, uh... I'm just not... Small talk kind of guy. I'm I'm worried I'm becoming a curmudgeon. This is my way of getting into talking about New Year's resolutions. If I were a person who did New Year's resolutions, that might be on the list. Be better at just, you know, small talk, asking, reminding myself to ask people how their day is going. You know, just generally nice things to do to other people. But hey, I, I'm not a person who does New Year's resolutions, so I won't be doing that. Now, if I was just worried about personal growth in general, maybe I'd work on that. But uh, hey, here we are. Did you ever? I mean, did you ever wonder why we do New Year's resolutions? Here's a little, uh, little fun fact you can share with your family and friends. If you're wondering, well, you're in luck. Uncle Devin's got the answer. The tradition of the New Year's Resolution goes all the way back to 153 BC when Janus, a mythical king of early Rome, was placed at the head of the calendar. Now, Janus, you may not have known this, had two faces. Uh, Janus uh, could look back on past events and forward to the future, as one does with two faces. Janus became the ancient symbol of resolutions, and many Romans looked for forgiveness from their enemies. They also exchanged gifts before the beginning of each year. So Romans would make resolutions to the god Janus, and uh, January is uh, now named after him. So now you uh, know about uh, the origins of uh, January as well. Celebration of New Year was first observed in ancient uh, ancient Babylon about 4,000 years ago. In the years around 2000 B.C., Babylonians celebrated the beginning of the New Year on what is now March 23rd. They had no written calendar. What they would do is make promises to their gods at the start each year, and then they would return borrowed objects and pay their debts. And it's evolved over the, the centuries since then. That is the extreme Coles Notes version of the origins of New Year's resolutions. Now, I don't make New Year's resolutions, and I just—I just, I said earlier I think they're dumb, they're stupid, just because no one ever keeps them. For example, you want to guess how long it takes most people to give up on their resolutions? It's a ridiculously short amount of time. There's a new study that was just done by uh, Strava. They're a social network for athletes. And they have discovered that Saturday, January 12th, this is from last year or maybe this year, uh, is the fateful day for New Year's resolutions. So January 12th is when most people are going to give up on their resolutions. It's only nine days away. And frankly, I'm happy with that. I don't have a New Year's resolution, but last year I did resolve uh, to lose weight, get in better shape, eat better, live better. But I began in November. I wanted to set my habits before the holidays started and everything. And so I've been going to the gym at least three times a week, sometimes four. I've been cutting down my salt, my sugar, exercising more, trying to eat vegan, vegetarian a few times a week, doing the whole thing. So the quicker the rest of you give up on your dreams, the more room I will have at the gym. So feel free to give up on your New Year's resolutions. There are a million studies when it comes to New Year's resolutions. There was one, and this is why I love the stories that are connected to them, <laughs> just because of how quickly we give up. There was a, a study that was done by the University of Scranton, it found that just 8% of people achieve their New Year's goals, around 80% fail to keep their New Year's resolutions, 55% of most re- New Year's resolutions are health related, exercising more, eating better. Others are financial related. One of the biggest reasons people fail is they have unrealistic expectations or you're not specific enough. If you just say, Hey, I want to lose weight, well, it's great, but like, what is that? Like one pound, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, more? There is a different study that goes back to 2007, a professor by the name of Richard Wiseman of the University of Hertfordshire Hertfordshire, in the UK, uh, released results of what he said at the time was the largest study into the psychology of New Year's resolutions. So throughout the entire year of 2007, he tracked over 3,000 people who had made a range of resolutions from losing weight to quitting smoking. As a part of the study, 52% of the participants were confident of success. One year later, he reported only 12% achieved their goal. And the actual success rate for just you and I might be even worse because people who are in the study would have had more motivation than maybe the average person. So he was saying maybe, you know, one in 10 really are going to be those who follow through on their resolutions. Apparently, these are the most popular broken New Year's resolutions to lose weight and stay uh, and get fit, to quit smoking, to learn something new what's something? Uh, to eat healthier and to diet, to get out of debt and save money, to spend more time with family, to travel to new places, to be less stressed to volunteer, and to drink less. That's pretty uh, the who's who of New Year's resolutions. So I used to make them, or I try, but I never really worked. And uh, I just, you know, I I have the general idea of improving things, but I just don't wait until uh, January 1st to do it. I will say, if you can make it through the first three months, though, the success rate for people to actually uh, go all the way through Goes up. So if you can do it for the first three months, you've got a pretty good idea. You can see it through to the end. So if you did make a New Year's resolution, uh, don't let me uh, stop you. I hope you're successful. But the uh, stats are not in our favor. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. This is uh, London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock, Governor Mike Stubbs. My thanks to Lori Campbell, to Gerald Chang, and Murray Faulkner for coming on the show today. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from an eyewitness describing a massive storm in his neighborhood. This is from the U.S., and how it interrupted his game of Fortnite. Have a great day. We'll be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock.
2: I was sitting at home, and I was playing Fortnite, and all of a sudden I just hear a bunch of noise, and I look out the window, and I start seeing the roof, Come off the houses in front of me. But then I sit back down because I only got like a couple people left in my gang. I was going to try to finish the game.
5: And what's going through your mind is you're, you're, you said you're in the bathroom with your sister and nephew.
2: I'm like, <laughs> I was, honestly, I was just thinking about the game.